Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Like the prophet Jonah, Jesus was sent to sow the seed of God's teaching on other soil. Unlike Jonah, Jesus trusted God's will carrying out his father's instruction without hesitation or the slightest hint of rebellion. So you can imagine the Lord's frustration when at the first hint of danger, the disciples cower from God's mission. The floods, David cried, have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. But thy testimonies, cower the disciples, are not confirmed. Do you not care that we are perishing? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 156 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I am really appreciative of the Gospel of Mark because it is turning out to be a text that keeps demonstrating the importance of context. The ideas of the Bible can't be isolated by this verse or that verse or even this pericope or that pericope. The fact that the crossing of the waters and the storm happens at the end of chapter 4 is important. The fact that the travels across the sea happen where they are. The fact that they are traveling across the sea. The fact that this then ties in with other texts is secondary even because we have to see how it works in the chapter in the book that it functions in. You know, many times I've talked to people from all different religious faiths and they'll take this verse, they'll take this chapter, this text, and they'll try to convince me of something. And unless you have a text open on your lap, I don't know if I can trust you or not. One of the things that I submit to our listeners is that the way that we speak, one may disagree with this point or that point, but that we're taking things out of context one cannot accuse us of. Take, for example, this vignette, this pericope about the quieting of the waters in the Gospel of Mark that comes just at the end of chapter 4. It is very common when you hear someone talk about a text like this that the minute they see that there's water, they talk about Exodus. Now, in principle, it's valid to examine whether or not there is a link to Exodus. But just because it's water and it sounds like a plausible link doesn't mean there's an actual link. You have to test and the way that you test is by first reading this section in context of the entire market narrative, and then going and looking at how water is used elsewhere, how the terminology links, and whether it's consistent with what's happening in Mark. This pericope makes a clear allusion to Jonah. However, it's not enough to say, oh, it sounds like Jonah. We have to see how Mark is using it in the context, because he just had a speech about the parable of the mustard seed and about how he spoke in parables. And that's 
essential to how we read this. And the allusion to Jonah is secondary. Now, the mustard seed and everything preceding the parable of the mustard seed, which is a parable of the kingdom, is all about trust. I want to reiterate this once again. The farmer goes out and he sows seed and he has to sow in as many locations as possible because he does not know how much seed is going to survive. He doesn't know how the soil is going to receive it. He has no control over the outcome, but he sows and he works hard and keeps going and keeps going to new soil and to new soil constantly because he has complete trust in the word of his father who provides the seed. The seed is analogous to the teaching. Now when you have that kind of trust, you have hope because even though you have not seen the fruit yet, because you place all of your trust in the seed, you live as though the fruit has already been fulfilled. You live with this kind of hope, this assuredness. It hasn't been fulfilled and the fruit has not been manifest but because you trust the will of the Father, you never doubt and you never waver in doing what you are commanded to do. Look, you have to take care of the soil and you have to fertilize the soil and prepare the soil and things like that. But the seed's the seed. You can't control the seed. There are two facts that you have to grant me. And if you do not grant me these basic facts, I cannot talk to you. The first fact is that if I plant the seed in a pot, or I plant the seed in a hydroponic center. If it grows, it's going to grow into the same plant. That's a yes or no question. The answer is yes, no matter where you plant it, if it grows, it's going to grow into what it's going to grow into, number one. Number two, the soil, no matter how well prepared, does not guarantee the harvest. You have to grant me that fact because there are many factors you can't control. If you're willing to grant those two facts, I'm not saying farmers can't do stuff to prepare the soil, but it doesn't change the fact that the seed does what the seed does. Because the will of the Father is permanent and persistent. You can't go to community A and say, I'm going to tailor the word for this community in this situation. If you're doing that, it's your word. The fruit's going to be of the seed that's planted. You plant the unadulterated seed, then you have a chance you have an opportunity that the correct fruit will come. But if you alter the seed or change the seed or try to manipulate the seed, there's no guarantee that the fruit's gonna be the fruit you're expecting. Now the grace upon grace that we talked about from the Johannine text, the wisdom upon wisdom that is poured upon those who trust in the seed is such that you have so much hope and so much trust that the power of the word is manifest before the time of the harvest. That's the beauty of scripture. When you trust scripture and you sow scripture, what you're sowing for is ahead of you with the coming kingdom. But the more you sow, the more grace you receive from the act of obedience and submission to sowing. That is how scripture works. When people talk about the grace of the priesthood, it's the grace of anyone who teaches. The more you teach, the more you learn. And Jesus has been trying to get them to understand that this power that comes from trusting in something so small, like a tiny mustard seed, is mightier than any 
opponent you could imagine, any king, any nation, any power on earth. Now in the Psalms, the Psalter is trying to demonstrate that God is mightier than the kings of the earth. But the way that it demonstrates it is by having God battle not necessarily the kings, but in many of the Psalms, he battles the waters. So this is the test. You know that all of the kings of the earth are arrayed around you at the beginning of the Psalter. And God's telling you he's laughing at all of the kings that you fear. And then later in the Psalter, you see God battling the waters. The text that I have in mind in this case is Psalm 93. It's Psalm 2 where we hear about all the kings arrayed around God and how he scoffs at them because he puts his king on Zion. And then we hear in Mark, who follows Ezekiel, about the sprig in Ezekiel that God sets on Zion. And now we're talking about Jesus and about trust in the mustard seed. And he's going to have a confrontation with the water, which again sets my mind on Psalm 93. I actually want to read it quickly. It's a short psalm. Listen, the Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. So this is militaristic terminology. He's girding himself for battle. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. This is kingly language. He is a king who is girded with strength, who is coming in power on his throne. And he's going to do battle. But his power has been established from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Remember that water is danger in the ancient world. And so water is danger in scripture. Now how does God overcome the waters? You are still thinking about Caesar or Pharaoh. What does Psalm 93 say? Your testimonies, your testimonies are fully confirmed, meaning it is the teaching in which I trust. And the word here, confirmed, ne'emnu in Hebrew, means either that it's established, aman meaning that it's solid, but interestingly, aman is also the word that's used for trusted or believed. So it can also mean are believed. So your testimonies are very much believed, are very much trusted in. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So you have here very clearly a confrontation between the Lord, our King, and the mighty waters of the sea, which threaten life. And he then subdues the waters. And then in verse 5, David is not worried about the situation, not because the Lord did it in the psalm, but because he trusts the word of the Lord, and because he trusts the word of the Lord, that's it. He's at ease. The testimonies declare the mightiness of God, so therefore, what is there to worry about? You just trust those testimonies are true. Now, you could doubt those testimonies and say, yeah, maybe God's not everything he's cracked up to be. Maybe the waters are going to get him this time. But if you trust the testimony, then you know that the water will be calm. And we've been hearing Jesus spreading the seed of testimony on many different soils all the way up until now. And then we hear the parable of the mustard seed about having faith in the tiniest seed you can imagine. And what do we have suddenly? On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. 
leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. He is always trying to leave the crowds, but as we've said many times, it's not for the sake of leaving the crowds, it's in order to continue to spread the seed. He can't sit and drum his fingers and wait and hope that something's going to come of this when it looks like nothing's coming of it. He has to find more soil. He has to find a place where he can plant this. So he's like, I have to go to the other side of the waters in order to find more land that I can plant my seed in. So they took him along with them in the boat. Remember before, the ones who were with him were the ones who were trying to hold him back. Remember that? They were trying to possess him. So I don't trust the people who are taking him along with them, but we'll see what happens. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. That is how you should hear the fierce gale of wind. This is significant that this comes right after Jesus is talking about having faith. Correct. Do you have faith enough that this tiny seed can grow into something spectacular that gives life? So here they're in a situation that seems capable of taking life. You're in a little boat. There's a storm coming. You're in danger. You're in danger of losing your life. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, as my son Nadim would say, is chillaxing because he knows that the seed is planted. He's got nothing to worry about. Jesus is being spread. Jesus is being blown. This is the irony. Remember before we were talking about the function of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the wind that moves the word where it goes. So if you're a dandelion seed, are you worried that, oh my goodness, the wind is so strong? No, you think, hooray, the wind is strong. I'm going to be able to go even farther than normal. Do you see while human beings are battening down the hatches and closing windows and tying down doors and picking up toys off the yard because of a windy day, you don't see the dandelions panicking <laughs> because the dandelion was made for the wind. It's this trust in the word of him who established creation. The dandelion seed requires wind in order to sow itself. Jesus requires the Holy Spirit to sow the teaching. And here the wind is blowing, and they say, Jesus, aren't you worried like us? Here's the thing. Jesus, as we said previously, is trying to create disciples who are going to spread the word. Here are disciples who are going against the word because they have no faith, and they're trying to spread their lack of faith to Jesus by saying, don't you care we're about ready to die? Because if you heard what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, you know that the sower is going to perish and leave the seed behind. So if Jesus perishes, he's doing exactly what he has to do. What are you worried about dying for? Don't you trust that the seed will produce life? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush be still, and the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Now, why would Jesus, who is perfectly at ease with the spirit blowing him all over the place, why would he then calm the wind down in order to explain as he was doing in verse 34 to explain the parable of the mustard seed that because I trust in the will of my father all things are possible to me because I trust 
the power of the word is manifest in me. It's not Jesus who's hushing the wind. It's the will of his Father. Because if God the Father didn't want it, Jesus couldn't do it. Now, if these disciples knew their scripture, when Jonah was on the ship and the storm tossed the ship and was about ready to sink it and kill all the people riding on it, it was because Jonah was disobedient. And the only way to calm the waters was to throw Jonah overboard because of his disobedience. Here, we begin with the same thing. Jonah was asleep in the ship. Jesus is asleep in the ship. Jonah comes up, and because of his disobedience, is sacrificed. Jesus, because of his obedience, calms the waters. Not by his own will, but by the will of his Father. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? This is the question. Because the wind is the will of the Father. It's the will of the Father that people receive the seed that Jesus is sowing. Because the seed is from the Father. In other words, if the Father did not want the wind to calm down, Jesus would still be relaxed. Do not hear this incorrectly. Do not hear it as though Jesus is relaxed because he knows it's going to be fine. Jesus is relaxed because he's not worried about perishing and he trusts that the seed will produce life whether he dies or not. If you think he's relaxed because it's going to be okay in the end, you're no better than the people that were marveling at his miracles. You still don't get the message. Because if that's the case, that he's relaxed because he knows everything is going to be okay, then he actually gives reason to the disciples to worry. Because if they say, Jesus, still things are not going okay, Jesus is like, well, maybe they'll start going okay later on. No. Jesus knows no matter what happens, whether the winds blow or whether they're calm, it is still the will of the Father, which is de facto okay. Now, he says, do you still have no faith? Jesus answers the disciples' questions with a question. Aren't you worried that we're about ready to perish? And his question, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you concerned about dying or not? Haven't I been telling you so far that the whole point is just to spread the seed? We will die, but you have to have faith that the will of my Father will play out according to his plan, which is in the seed. So what are you worried about, and why don't you believe my Father? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They still don't get it. And this is why it's essential that this come after the parable of the mustard seed. Because he had to explain to them over and over again what the parable was, what the parable means, what it means to have faith, why you shouldn't get in my way, why I have to continue to spread the seed, spread the word. This is essential and they can't get it, even when he says, why are you afraid? Oh, we're very much afraid. Why are you afraid? Oh, you're scaring us. Well, you're not supposed to be afraid. Right. But, but we might die. Well, don't be afraid. When he says, don't be afraid, what he's accusing them of, or what's implied in the question, is that they're subject to Satan. Because we know from Paul's letters, from the letter to the Hebrews, that the one who wields the power of death is Satan. So if you're afraid of the power of the waters, if you're afraid of the power of Caesar, of Pharaoh, if you're afraid 
of anything other than the power of the seed, you're subject to the authority of the principalities that rule this world, which is the power of death. In Hosea, they try to manipulate the forces of nature by sacrificing to Baal. I mean, this is how it always works. There's always a way to try to make the environment adapt to you. And then once it can't adapt to you, then you freak out. Rather than saying, you know what? It would just be easier if you adapted to the environment and relax and have faith that the environment will be fine. And in Hebrews, in the same text which deals with the power of death, the power of Satan, the Lord rolls up the heavens like a tent, which we hear in the Psalter. The one who rolls up the heavens like a tent has power over all of this. It all passes away, but his word never passes away, his testimonies. The same testimonies we hear about in Psalm 93. If you're worried about what the waters of creation are gonna to do to you, you're worried about something transient. Even all of creation is transient. That's the point. The word is not transient. But it cannot produce the fruit if it has fear. The power of death this is the control that Satan has over you because of your respect for things that are temporary. Your fear of things that are temporary. You don't want to lose your job. You don't want to lose your house. You don't want to go to war. You don't want the floods to rise up over your fence. And because of those fears of things that pass away, that's the key. You're willing to give power to a human being who claims that he can save you from those things. Fear is a power in and of itself, and it will take over. If you have faith, then you can answer Jesus's question, why are you afraid? You're right, Jesus, I shouldn't be afraid. <laughs> They're afraid, and they'll be afraid at the end of Mark when they run to the tomb. But are they afraid for the correct reason? They're afraid of him because of the power of the word manifest in his speech, which is the power of the Father, the will of the Father. But they're still not asking about the seed. They're still not getting his point about the seed. They're still focusing on who he is because they still want to make out of him like all the kings of all the other nations. That's the difficulty. And that fear persists in Mark all the way to the tomb. Because why are they afraid when the tomb is empty? Because they're looking for David. They want a king that they can make a statue out of. There's no statue in Mark. It's an empty tomb. And they're terrified because the absence of a statue raises the question, who's going to protect me from war, pestilence, flood, earthquake? from my mortgage payment. They still haven't figured it out. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.